Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. This episode is focusing on Amos, another prophet, but a very different prophet, presumably to Jonah, that we looked at in a previous episode, Mike. Uh, where, where was Amos from? Well, Amos was actually from the southern of the two nations. Remember, we've talked in previous episodes about how after King Solomon died, the nation split into two, 10 northern tribes in the north called Israel, two in the south called Judah. And Amos was from a little place called uh, Tekoa, which was about 12 miles south of Jerusalem from the southern part of the two kingdoms. But the interesting thing is, although he was a southerner, um, God sent him to preach to the north. And as anyone who's moved from south to north or north to south will know in our own country, that can sometimes have its challenges, can't it? <laughs> I can tell from your accent that you might have done that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Several <indeed>. times. <laughs> so was he, was he unwelcome in the north? Well, he was and he wasn't. When his prophecies open in chapter one and two, he's very clever. What he does is he goes to the north to start preaching. And the first thing he does, very clever move on his part, is he starts to preach against all the surrounding nations and denouncing them. All the neighbours. All the neighbours. So you know, Aram and Philistia and Phoenicia and Edom and Ammon and Moab. So all these, telling them how bad they are and how God's judgment is going to come on them. And you can imagine his listeners going, yeah, that's right, that's right. So the problem was with everybody else. That's how he starts his preaching. But then, as a really clever preacher and prophet, he suddenly turns, having denounced everyone else, including Judah, he suddenly turns in chapter two to denouncing Israel itself. And suddenly the finger is on them and he goes straight for the heart of their issues, denouncing social sins, sexual sins, spiritual sins. Bang, he's there. Well, at that point, you can imagine that Amos didn't become all that popular. So the southerner in the north uh, was was not for flavour of the month, should we say. So his message, let's just maybe be clear what the what his message was. What, what was he saying to, to them in, in particular? He was challenging God's people that you cannot say you are God's people and still live your old way of life. God's people have to live differently. You cannot imitate the behaviour and the practices of everyone round about you. You have to live differently. And for Israel, that meant living according to the law of Moses that God had given them. And they felt they were okay because they were God's people. They were really going around saying, well, it's fine for us, you know, all those sinners out there. Yeah, we know we get things wrong occasionally, but we're the chosen people. We'll be okay. We're the chosen people. But Amos cuts right to the heart of it and he says, it's because you're the chosen people that my punishment's going to start with you. The one who has greater privilege 
also has greater responsibility. Right. And that's a message that comes out again mm. in the New Testament. So they were sort of hiding behind their heritage to some degree. Absolutely. And of course, it's still easy to do that for us today, isn't it? To hide behind our family heritage. My dad, my granddad, my grandma was a great Christian. Our church had a great heritage. A hundred years ago, we really changed this town. And then to become complacent out of what has been, rather than to build on what has been, and to take that forward for the future. And this was an incredibly complacent people. You see, around this particular time, um, if we just set it in its history, Amos was prophesying in the reign of a king called Jeroboam II. He reigned from 795 to 753 BC. So that's 41 years, quite a long reign mm. for those days. And it was a time of incredible economic prosperity and growth. Okay, so things were going well. Things were going incredibly well. And the trouble is when things go incredibly well at a sort of social economic level, when you are comfortable, it's easy for you to relax. So while things were going really well at a political and economic level, underneath the spiritual life of the nation was declining. And it started not by Israel outright rejecting God. That rarely happens. We've seen that in our own cultures in the West, but rather a gradual undermining of it by trying to blend what's going on out there in the world with the beliefs of God's people, something that we call syncretism, trying to blend two different ways of living. And for Israel, it was still very much that old, are we going to follow Yahweh or are we going to be tempted to the old Baal worship and all the highly sexualized and immoral things that that permitted? And so they'd been trying to blend these two, but they were missing it because life was so comfortable. And it, I mean, perhaps we can understand because what do politicians promise us every time an election mm. comes around? They promise us they're going to do this and this and the economics of the country is going to get better. And, you know, we're going to we're going to improve here and improve there. You never hear them say, uh, and we're going to improve the spiritual welfare of the nation. That would go down like a bomb, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, you know, it was pretty much like that here. But this was God's own people. Mm. For them, their relationship with God and what that meant should have been the most fundamental thing of all. So because they were missing the mark spiritually, how was that having an impact on society? Well, because they were neglecting the word of God, then they were neglecting so much of the teaching that was in there. And one of the biggest things that comes out in the book of Amos, one of his passions was their, their disregard for the poor and their perversion of justice. So there are lots of passages in Amos where he challenges them about the way that they are neglecting the poor. Now, they thought because they were still, as it were, going to church in our language, they were fine. So at one point he says, yeah, keep going to Bethel and sing, keep going to Gilgal, which were really important shrines for them. But they were missing the most important things which was letting their faith be seen 
in really practical ways. To the point where in, in chapter five, God actually says to them, I, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. Don't bring your festivals before me anymore. The very things God had commanded. That's strong language. Oh, my goodness. Amos has such strong language. And it is all because they thought that religion in itself was enough. And Amos reminds them, no, religion has to find expression in the way that you live with your neighbor. And in particular, the way that you care for the poor. But you said that that's God. God's through Amos speaking to his own people saying, I hate your religion. That's exactly what Amos prophesies. I hate your religion. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because the religion was all the sacrifices and festivals that God had given. But he now says, what I have given to you, I actually hate because of the heart that is behind it. It is a wrong heart. Religious festivals, traditions, services in themselves achieve nothing, God says through Amos, unless that is doing something to touch and change your heart. And particularly for him, caring for the poor was one of the key ways that they were failing to show that. How were they getting that wrong? What was happening in their world? Well, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer, as so often happens in life, doesn't it? So the rich were investing more and more in their own comfortable lives and they were overcharging for goods. They were. There's a passage where um, he actually quotes them saying, you know, when will the festivals be over? When will the Sabbath be ended so that we can go to the meat market, uh, to the wheat market and skimp the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scale. So there's a little insight. The merchants were going to the market and they got these scales that they used to weigh things out on, and clearly they'd fiddled with the weight. So they were giving low measure. They were doing anything they could to duck and dive to make sure that they prospered at the expense of the poor. And God was so angry with that. And you know, that's the theme that's still picked up in the New Testament. It's interesting when Paul went to meet with all the main leaders, two or three years after he'd become a believer, and they go and they share together what their gospel is so that they can be clear they're on the same page. And the other apostles agree that Paul's called to go to the Gentiles and the others to the Jews. But there's an interesting comment where they say, all they asked was that we remember the poor, which very thing I was glad to do. Now, isn't that interesting? A hallmark of apostolic religion there mm. was caring for the poor. It's not an extra. Mm. It is part of the essence of true religion. And that's one of the things that Amos hammers away at again and again, that God is concerned for the poor. And if you aren't, well, can you really call yourself my people? So he obviously needs a way of getting that message across loud and clear. He's used some strong language from what you've said already. What other words, what other images, what other <laughs> methods does he use to let that message sink in? 
Amos seems to have been a prophet who very much got his words visually. Now, one of the things I love about the prophets in the Old Testament is they aren't cardboard cutouts. They aren't cardboard replicas of one another. They they came from different backgrounds. So Amos was a, a shepherd or oh. a, a sheep trader, mm-hmm. the Hebrew word probably means. Uh, others came from higher levels of society. Ezekiel was a priest. And they all had different characters and God spoke to them in different ways. And one of the ways that God spoke to Amos was particularly through what he saw. And sometimes that seeing was visual, literally with his eyes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it seems to have been a picture that he saw in his mind. A vision? Sort of vision, an idea one might almost say. Many Christians today who sort of, when they are praying, get sort of pictures in their mind, we could call it, and God speaking to them through it. What, what are some of those in, in Amos's case? Well, in chapter 7 and 8, we get a, a couple of examples. Um, in chapter 8, we, we read this uh, word. It says, what do you see, Amos? And he says, um, I see a basket of ripe fruit. <laughs> and the Lord said to me, yes, ripe. The time is ripe for judgment on my people. Now, he was probably there literally walking down the street and suddenly saw something and God caught his attention. And for some reason, that that basket of ripe fruit that perhaps he'd walked past many times caught his attention that day. And suddenly God was speaking. What do you see? And for me, myself, I know I often get impressions from God of words to share with people through things that I physically see. How do you, how do you, if you don't mind me just pausing you there, how do you know that's from God? That's always the question, isn't it? Um, do you know what? At the end of the day, I don't think anyone ever is a hundred percent sure. Paul talks in the new Testament about us prophesying in part, and we only see fully on that day we get to be with Jesus. So it, it demands an element of faith, but, What I've discovered is the more you use it, the more you get a little bit more confident, though beware of being arrogant. I have a little saying, if in doubt, give it out and share it. But to share it for us these days is I felt this impression of a picture in my mind and I just feel God might be saying to you. And and suddenly it's more invitational Hmm. than dumping on someone. So part of Amos's vision was sometimes literally what he saw. And sometimes it could be a picture in his mind uh, instead. So we get an example of that in chapter 7, where he sees the Lord standing by a wall holding a plumb line. Now, clearly he didn't see the Lord as such. So that is more likely to have been an image, an impression that he got mm-hmm. than something he physically saw. And what was the point of that? He was there saying the wall was supposed to have been built straight to a plumb line. Obviously, a plumb line, piece of string with a weight at the bottom that hangs down and you see if the wall is straight. And Israel should have been built as a straight wall. And God's saying, you're not straight at all. You're completely out of line. 
So each time he sees one of these pictures, literally or in his mind's eye, it's not just, oh, I see a nice picture. Each time there's an application of what God is saying to his people through that picture that Amos shares. And is there, are there a number of these sort of pictures, these, these visions, because it's taking some time for the message to get home? Yes, there are. And as we go through his book, we find several of them. In chapter nine, I saw the Lord standing by an altar. Clearly again there, either a vision or a picture in his mind's eye. And he's continually sharing these through, but all of them are actually all to the same end. And his passion is, look, you're called to be the people of God, but you are not living as God intended you to live according to his word, word and, and differently from those around you. And he's issuing a, a warning, presumably, that if they don't change, then the end is nigh. I mean, I'm imagining this this character that we've all seen on, on the street with the, the placard. <laughs> with the placard. Yeah. The end is nigh. And, yeah. and what happens? And we all cross over to the other side of the road. We ignore we? it, yeah. Is that a sort of similar situation here? Do you know what? That's a really good picture. Because I suspect many of us feel uncomfortable when we see that sort of street preacher placard wearer with that sort of message. And that's how people felt about Amos. You know, they were really, really uncomfortable with him. And there definitely was a call from Amos not just to you are God's people and change. The other half of his message is you are God's people, change or judgment is coming. There's a phrase he has in chapter four to prepare to meet your God in judgment, you people of Israel. Well, that was ridiculous. You know, we're the people of God. Hmm. We're not going to meet God in judgment, you could imagine them saying. But one of the images that Amos uses is an image that's used by prophets from his period, especially the prophet Isaiah, who's something of a contemporary, where he talks about the day of the Lord. Now, in Jewish thinking at this time, the day of the Lord was going to be the day at the end of human history when God himself would come and would intervene in the affairs of human history, destroy all Israel's enemies and establish his people again as the center of the whole earth. In other words, everyone else was a sinner. Israel, Judah alone would be those who would survive on that day. But what Amos and, and other prophets like him, in fact, there's a whole number, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, all have reference to this, showing how common an idea it must have been. So the people would have been familiar with what was meant by the day of the Lord, was Absolutely. They? Everyone understood. Hmm. It's a bit perhaps like today, people talking about the return of Jesus. Now, we may not understand all the details, but we know what that means. But whereas Israel thought what it meant was that would be the last great day when God would finally judge the nations. So they were all rubbing their hands in glee, thinking, great, we can't wait for it. That's when everybody else gets their comeuppance. What prophets like Amos do is turn that on their heads and say, listen, the day of the Lord is coming, but it's coming 
to you. And unless you, as God's people, are the first to repent, there will be nothing to look forward to. Because what is coming to you is judgment along with everyone else. In other words, simply having the name of, I am one of God's people, is not enough. So to some extent, for the people at the time, it was it was just words or it was just a, a, an outward demonstration of their beliefs, not necessarily worked out in practice in terms of social justice. That's right. Sure. And that was something that clearly Amos was using this strong language to, to address and, and get them to hear. I suppose the question is, did they hear his message? Well, they didn't really. Um, because, you see, they were so convinced. Now, for prophets down in Judah, the thing they would have to struggle with was they got the temple. Come on, man, we've got the temple. God's not going to do anything against us and against the temple. That was one of the things Jeremiah would have to deal with. In the north, we've got the shrines. We've got Bethel. We've got Gilgal. Come on, we're the people of God. God is not going to do anything against us. Amos, you're completely crazy. And yet, as we get towards the end of his book, so by chapter seven and eight of Amos, he sees through a whole series of these visions or these pictures that he gets um, that time has run out and that judgment is inevitable. And by the time he gets to chapter nine, he's actually saying that Israel will be destroyed. Now, when you think about that for the people at the time, that was absolutely crazy. Israel was part of the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the people who'd been brought out of the promised land, the people who'd been given the law, the people who'd been given the gift of the land of Canaan. And you're saying that judgment is coming on us? Come on, man, that's crazy. But he's saying yes, because just a name doesn't matter. It's the heart that matters. In our terms, just Calling yourself a Christian is not what will save you. It's the heart having a true and living relationship with Jesus that finds expression in living a life that is pleasing to God. So he says the days are coming when judgment is going to come on the north. What he was thinking of was what would happen shortly in 722, 721 B.C., when that mighty empire of Assyria over in the east that was looking to expand would eventually come and completely destroy the north, take it over, swallow it up and take those 10 tribes and disperse and scatter them across its empire, never ever to return again. Those 10 tribes would be lost in the flow of the history it would only be people from judah who would survive so he's prophesying like many of the prophets of that period that god is so serious about this that he will even allow that mighty empire assyria to come and be the instrument of his judgment unless you change and you know what, what that underlines to me is shows how pretty important these things are to god if God were prepared to use Assyria, who was known to be so cruel, so wicked, to bring judgment on his people because they weren't living as he wanted them to and they weren't caring for the poor. For me, that just underlines 
how important this issue is to God. So again, thinking of this person with the placard, the end is nigh, in this case, that was the case. The northern tribes, you said, were scattered forever, never to be brought back together. They would never be brought back together. One of the big differences in the history of this period between what happened to Israel and Judah was that when the 10 northern tribes were taken into exile by Assyria, Assyria took them all over its empires. They deliberately broke them up. They were breaking up any future possible power base for rebellion. And so those tribes were taken and scattered. And what happened was they gradually intermarried, intermingled with the people where they were put, and they never had the opportunity to come back together again. They're simply gone, and we don't know what happened to them. By contrast, Judah, when it would be taken into exile in 586 BC, this time to Babylon, who'd replaced Assyria, they would be taken and kept in identifiable communities. So they were allowed to maintain their identity. And so when the 70 years that Jeremiah the prophet prophesied would be up, they would be able to return and continue the purposes of God in the land of Israel. So the point is the people were wrong. Amos was right. It did all come true. Was it all bad news? Is, is that how the story ends in the book of Amos? It's not, because with God, there's always hope, isn't there? And one of the lovely things is, as we come to the end of Amos, Amos chapter 9, the, the first half of the chapter still keeps on with this theme, the end is nigh and Israel will be destroyed. But then he gives a glint of hope. He says God is not going to completely annihilate his people. He has this lovely picture again. Um, he says, in that day, I'm going to restore David's fallen tent. David, of course, King David, the great king to whom God had given that promise that he'd always have a descendant mm. upon the throne of Israel. His fallen tent Probably a reference there, not to the tabernacle, but that tent of worship that David had set up in Jerusalem. So he's looking forward to a day when God will keep his promise to David and a king will again be on the throne. Now, it would not be a king of Israel. Actually, it would not even physically ultimately be a king of Judah. As Christians, we know who that king is. Jesus, the one who is descended from David. But he ends on this great note of hope about the days are coming, God says. And he has this lovely picture of the, the, the reaper in the harvest being overtaken by the plowman. You think, hang on, you, you can't plow until you've taken the harvest in. And the planter by the one treading grapes. So he has this picture of a day coming when it will be so fruitful again in God's land that you'll barely be able to keep up with the fruitfulness and blessing that God gives. And the man will still be harvesting the grain when the plower man's coming in saying, hang on, we're sowing the seed again. Whoa, wait a minute, I've not finished. Here's this delightful picture in an agrarian culture from a man who'd spent his life looking after sheep, mm -hmm. a picture that he and the people could understand. 
of blessing that would eventually come. Now, sadly, it would not be for all these people because they would be scattered. But his message is that, yes, judgment is coming, but with God, judgment is always followed by hope, and he will reestablish his people again. And, of course, he would. But that's another part of the story. It sounds, though, as if the thrust of the message of Amos is around this emptiness in their religion, the superficiality of what they believed. Absolutely. Again and again, he says words like, on God's behalf, I hate, I despise your religion. So when people say to me sometimes, I don't like religion, I always say to them, no, nor do I, and nor does God. What God wants, Amos says, is a heart relationship with people. And sure, that can be expressed in worship services and songs and praying. But unless all those services and songs and praying are a genuine reflection of a soft and tender heart to God that wants to live life differently and live life according to his word, God says to us through Amos, do you know what? That's pretty meaningless to me. So I suppose the challenge Amos lives with, leaves with us really is take a look at your life and see whether it really reflects that you've put your trust in me and that you're living your life differently and in the way I call you to in my word. David Tavner was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.